Well, hello, everyone. This is Jamie Oichel from RunningRestaurants.com, and we've got a great session for you today as we talk all about restaurant formation as well as the other legal challenges of running a successful restaurant. Joining me is Kareem Hajar, founding partner of Hajar Peters, which is a full-service business law firm in Austin, Texas. Kareem has represented over 1,000 bars, restaurants, and other retail businesses throughout the U.S., and helps clients with a wide array of business issues. So it's going to be great to get the insights of someone deep in the trenches helping restaurants structure themselves for success. Kareem, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great here, man. And uh, I'm looking forward to covering a lot of insights today for restaurateurs. But before we dig into that, tell me how you came to specialize, you know, to, to a large extent in the restaurant and hospitality niche. It's like most people, everything happens by accident. It, Austin in 2004 was a pretty average culinary scene. It's certainly not like what we have today where where we have 20, 30% growth year over year of restaurants. And, and we certainly weren't on any culinary maps for, for hot culinary scenes. So it, it we were most famous for, for our sixth street, entertainment district which is a historic street that is just bar after bar after bar and that was pretty much it i had a client reach out to me and, and say hey i'm going to get into the bar business again he'd he'd retired and and so asked me if i would i would represent that that formation and establishment and its permits etc we'll talk about some of that stuff today and as it turns out that client had two new partners and between them they had 30 units of bars and restaurants between them and, and so I, I went from 1 to 30 very quickly and as, as time went on 30 became 100, 100 became 200 and and pretty soon it, it had taken over my practice and, and Austin at the same time it exploded so I kind of got the moniker of being the bar restaurant lawyer as, as Austin really needed a bar restaurant lawyer so o over time it, it's been uh, a really wonderful practice area and and there's a lot that is specific to bars and restaurants because there's no such thing as bar and restaurant law it's it's real estate law it's corporate law it's intellectual property it's litigation it's it's wage and hour issues and labor it's securities when you bring on investors um it's it's Litigation when somebody slips and falls, et cetera, right? It's, it's permitting and administrative law. It can be criminal when you're dealing with licensing issues or, or service of a minor. So it really spans every practice area that exists. And you have to be good at each one of those practice areas, but then you also really need to have specific knowledge about bars and restaurants because far and away, a bar and restaurant, a bar or restaurant, is the most intense retail use out there and, and if when I stop to think about it what other use out there in the retail world is as intense maybe a dry cleaner because of their environmental issues but but think about a what a bar and restaurant does every day you've got exponentially more customers than a typical retail establishment you cut the slab and you you puncture what is a very expensive and warranted roof like it's normal you may you may punch it four or five times depending on the size of the of the restaurant because of the number of customers you have way more employees which means that you're going to have way more sounds way more smells parking takes a real deal you're going to create legitimate amounts of dirt and waste 
So the result of it is everything is just is just more intense. And and then more than any other retail use, your your product that you sell is perishable. So your run rate is extremely high, whether you have people that come through the door or not. So so a lot of care really needs to be taken in every aspect of of your formation, your construction, your opening, and your operation, just because the stakes are so high. You hit a lot right there, and you told tell the story of, of a restaurateur. Uh, who think who who might think it's easy to start in the restaurant business, and you just covered you know ten, fifteen, twenty things that you got to know about, be good about, and get right to have a chance uh, to succeed. And uh, and it's it's an amazing business, and and you hit you hit it in exactly the right way with the, the intensity of it, the, the number of employees, the fact that you're dealing with customers. So let's start in the beginning where a restaurant really needs to set themselves up for success, and that starts with the the legal formation of their entity. And there's probably I don't know enough about this. Um, there's a, probably a litany of ways to do this and to do it right. What are some of the, maybe the pitfalls to avoid? What are the things to get right? What are some tips you can share about restaurant formation? So there are three major types of entities, and, and LLCs are, are the chameleon entity. We'll talk about that last. But in corporate law, generally, there are, are two ends of the spectrum. On on the left side of the spectrum, you have corporations, which which today will or we we will stay in the S corp world because most of them are S corps. When you get into the larger institutional level entity, they become C corps, and we can talk about that and, and the difference between them. But most restaurants and and seemingly most of the members of of your website are going to be using pass-through entities. So that would be an S-corp on one end of the spectrum and or partnerships on the far end of the other end of the spectrum. So S-corps are rigid, and, and that can be very good in some ways and bad in other ways. But in an S-corp, you know what you get. And what I mean by that is S-corps have shareholders. Shareholders are your owners. They are, by definition, passive. They don't do anything. They don't have any real authority other than appointing or electing directors. And, and directors are on a board. You have a board of directors. Those individuals make strategic decisions about how this entity will be governed and run, and they will appoint officers to run the day-to-day. -day. So, so you know what you get. You're a shareholder. You elect directors, they appoint officers. There's very clear delineation of authority, so so people know where they sit in that chain. Some people, and some a lot of entities, there are people who happen to hold, hold uh, positions in, in two of those, or even all three of them. So your, your mom and pop restaurant, they're shareholders and directors and officers, and it's all one. Uh, they don't really think about it, but there are very clear delineations of, of authority that are there. Why is this a good structure? If you are a mom and pop, there are some tax advantages that we won't really talk about today too much, but there are some tax advantages to being an S-Corp versus being uh, taxed as a partnership. So if if you are going to be a, a one or two unit little restaurant and and it's, it's going to be you and your wife or, or you and your your 
sister or family member or some very small static type ownership, it's a great way to go. Um, one of the downsides or a few of the downsides are that you have to be an individual to own an S-Corp. So it's hard for you to raise money and bring on investors or large sums where people might want to use an investment entity in an S-Corp because, again, you have to be an individual or you can be another S-Corp. But at the end of the day, the ownership of, of what is an S-Corp is going to be fundamentally an individual-owned entity. So very rigid but can be very good. On the far end of the spectrum, on the other side, are partnerships. So limited partnerships, general partnerships, joint ventures. We look for entities that have a limited liability component, meaning that you are not personally liable for the liabilities of the company. So traditionally, that would be a limited partnership. Uh, but so partnerships, by, by their definition, can be very fluid, meaning that if you and I were to start a restaurant, we're 50-50, we're but we can sever ownership from distributions, from voting rights, from tax allocations, from liquidation preferences. All of it is completely and totally severable, meaning that, you know, Jamie, you could start a restaurant and say, hey, Kareem, I want a hundred grand from you to be an investor. And I say, hey, great, Jamie, uh, tell you what, how about I get the first 200 grand out and then we'll split the next hundred grand 50 50. And then after that, you maybe you get the next hundred grand. And then after that, we'll go 50 50 thereafter. Great, right? That you can do that. And we can allocate taxes completely to you. And watch, I'm, I'm real pumped about that part of it so that I, I get no tax allocation. You get to pick up the burden on taxes. You're not happy about that, obviously. But then we can say, hey, you know what? Until I get paid back, I get the only vote. You don't get a vote. So we can literally sever all of it. Not that you would do it, but the flexibility is there. And, and the bigger you get, the more sophisticated your investors get, the more that flexibility becomes valuable. So why don't we always form limited partnerships? Well, the downside to a limited partnership now is that, and it's always been the case, is that you have to have one party that is personally liable, and that is the general partner. Well, we're lawyers. We find creative ways around everything, so we create a corporate general partner that doesn't have personal liability. So now we have two entities to deal with, not not one. The result of that is people said, "Well, you know what? I, I like that. I like that cool, rigid structure of of, a, of an S corporation where I know where I stand, and I really love the cool, fluid structure of being able to pay the investors more, or get them paid back first, or whatever it is." And so they smashed them together, and they created a limited liability company, the LLC, and. LLCs today are the primary entity that is used because of the fact that they can be set up and taxed like either one. We have some different terms here. So instead of shareholders, we have something called members. Members elect managers, similar to a board of directors, who appoint officers. But we don't have to have officers. In fact, we don't have to have managers. We can have a member 
run entity and it's called a member managed LLC, but it's, it's a member run entity. Or we can have a manager managed entity where you have members electing managers. So we can create an entity that has three tiers of authority similar to a corporation. In fact, we can tax it like a corporation if we feel like it. Or, or we can have it with three tiers of ownership but have really cool distribution provisions so it, it is being taxed like a partnership and organized similarly to a partnership but have the, the authority structure like a corporation. So we can really do anything with an LLC. So the concept of, hey, I just want a simple LLC, it, every lawyer will have their own definition of what that means because some will think that is a member-managed entity, and, and I would set up a manager-managed entity. But but what I'm getting at is there is no such thing as a simple LLC because they are they are the true chameleon entity built to handle almost anything. Most of my clients today are are either going to form limited liability companies or if they are larger institutional level uh, restaurant groups, they will form a C corporation, meaning that there is no pass-through tax treatment. So you're paying corporate income tax, which is a, which is a, a downside. But when you get to when you get to that level, investors don't want to get taxed on money they don't get. So at the end of the day. Uh, you'll go a C corp so that as as people put in their money and, and you're growing this restaurant group, you're you're not taxing your your investor on money that that they're ultimately not getting. So C corps also can tier their ownership similar to partnerships, which is why a C corp conversation is a, is a completely different conversation. Um, but so today in our practice, we form a heck of a lot of LLCs and and we form C corporations a fair amount for our larger clients and then further down the list we form uh, S-Corps for your your very static 1Z, 2Z mom and pop type restaurant. Last but not Bring least, up. we form some limited partnerships and, and it's just not many anymore. I was tempted to jump in there, but I didn't want to because you were, you were covering so much stuff and you were hitting hitting all the, the pros and cons uh, of each. So that, that if, uh, if, if I took a lot of notes, I hope if you were listening Folks, you took you took a lot of notes there on on the benefits, and obviously, um, what I think is great about this call is Kareem is doing this every day with 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 you know hundreds of clients and in his marketplace and elsewhere, and so um, he's going to give you kind of the insights of what's work what's working for folks and. A lot to think about there. Def, definitely some stuff people are going to want to want to dig in when they actually make their decisions. What, let, let's go, you know, kind of beyond beyond that because uh, I think you know to get any more technical would would be would be digging real in. And let's hit a couple other topics that you you deal with every day and and, and what people can really make or break 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 the firm. I mean, formation is key. Obviously, that structure is key. Another thing I know you you help folks with a lot is that is that real estate piece, the leasing piece. And I and I always think about that as you know that deal really is gonna is is really gonna set you up for success or just or do me for failure down the road because you signed the wrong deal. What do, what do you do when a, when a client comes to you and say, hey, I found a great spot, or or hey, I think this is a great lease, and 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 but how do you stop them and slow them down and, and make sure they're getting the right deal? First thing, blunt discussion. This site might look great. You cannot get emotionally attached to that site. Right. 
I have I have so many clients that that during a lease negotiation will ultimately give on points that I know they shouldn't give on. They know they shouldn't give on, but they just think that that site is going to be great. And and at the end of the day, it's our job to make sure that you know the risks of what it is that you're signing, and and then it's up to you, the client, to make the decision as to whether or not that risk falls into your risk matrix, your own risk matrix of, is this an acceptable risk for me? And when I send an email to a client that says, dear client, I really think that this is a, a, a real issue that you should really, really think about. That is about as close as I can get to telling you, you shouldn't do this. And and I get so many of those responses back that uh, that they say, I know, but I, I just think it's really gonna it's really gonna be a home run here. And you just go, okay, you know, okay, they they they, they own you, but okay. And and it's a restaurant's base. What it's built on are two documents: your corporate documents we just talked about, and and if you're leasing your lease. It's just you can't exist without your corporate documents. You can't exist without a lease. And your entire operation is going to be governed by the terms of that lease. So if you agree to be a Mexican restaurant and you decide that you want to be a Thai restaurant, if your lease doesn't provide for use flexibility to allow you to convert to a Thai restaurant, you're a Mexican restaurant even if your restaurant, Mexican restaurant is hemorrhaging money. So everything you do is going to be governed in some form or fashion by that lease. So so for starters, we have a conversation with every client similar to the next five minutes of what it is that these clients need to look at in this lease and truly understand so that when they sign this 110-page lease, they really know what's in it. And and then, what can we change in it to make it more balanced? So for, for us, I have a, a five-tiered set of things that we look at. And, and for starters, we look at your personal liability. So again, kind of like corporations or your corporate structure, we're looking at entities where, where we're looking at entities with no personal liability. I'm looking for the same thing in your lease. So is there a personal guarantee where you, an individual, are agreeing to pay for the liabilities of the lease if your business entity doesn't pay for it? And I, I'm going to repeat it because I can't tell you how many times people don't understand what that means and go, oh, yeah, no, no, I just guaranteed it. It's fine. And you go, no, no, you just said you guaranteed it. It's like, yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. No, no, it, it does matter. A guarantee is a promise by you, the individual, to pay for the liabilities of your business under the lease if your business doesn't pay for them. And this is not limited to just rent. If you read the default provisions of your lease, if something goes wrong in your lease, your landlord, depending on what state you're in, has a number of remedies that they can say, oh, you also agreed to pay for the broker's commissions. Oh, you also agreed to pay for the free rent that I gave you at the beginning of your lease. 
oh, you also agreed to pay for all the TI that I gave you, that $70,000 of tenant improvement allowance. Oh, you also agreed to pay for the next tenant's commissions and TI and free rent. So what you think is just a little rental obligation turns out to be hundreds of thousands of dollars where you're now looking at bankruptcy and you visit with one of my other colleagues down the hall. You also are guaranteeing if the place burns down and the insurance doesn't pay for it, guess what? You get to pay for it. And you go, oh, I didn't think about that one. Yep. If this place burns and your insurance sticks you and you don't get paid, the landlord will look at you, the guarantor, the individual, to come out of pocket $600,000 to rebuild the space. So guarantee limitations or having a guarantee burn off are essential. If if you're being stuck with a full and complete and unlimited guarantee, in my opinion, you just flat can't sign that lease. Right? Just non-starter. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do we look at? Uh, we look at downside risk mitigation. So once we have the personal guarantee in a position where we're happy, we look at what happens if things go wrong in your operation. And it's my job to be the wet blanket, and it's my job to, to think about things not being rosy. So um, I'm the quintessential um, party pooper, if you will. So let's look at how we can fix things if things go wrong. What do we look at? The big ones, we need flexibility in use, trade name, assignment and subletting, continuous operation, alteration, signage, uh, and, and why those specifically? Well, if, if we're going to go with the, the example I, I gave earlier of you're a Mexican restaurant and it's just not going well, well, let's, let's change and become a Thai restaurant, okay? Uh, we need to change our use because our use says we can be a Mexican restaurant. And at the same time, we're going to need to change our trade name because whatever Hispanic Mexican food restaurant name I had probably won't work for my new Thai restaurant. Right. I may need to close down and remodel. So I need, I need to be able to close down and do that cosmetic work to turn it into that Thai restaurant. So I need to be able to, A, close down, and then, B, I need to be able to make alterations pretty easily. Finally, I need to go to my landlord and, and change my sign. So there's signage. And if you don't have flexibility on all of those points and you have to go get the permission of landlord, then you're now in a position where the landlord can hang that over your head and say, sure, I'll let you change use, but not your trade name. You go, wait, wait a minute. Oh, what a sneaky, sneaky guy that is. And, and surreptitious landlords will charge you an insane amount of money to get that signature, get that consent. So you really can be held over a barrel without without having all of those points with some degree of flexibility. Uh, what else do we look at? We look at landlord gotchas. Uh, a fun one, but there are dozens in every lease, but a fun one is in one part of a lease it will say that the, that the tenant can't access the roof. And they make a big deal about how the roof is, is a viable thing. It's under warranty. You can't get up there. And then 10 pages later, there'll be a requirement that says you have to maintain your HVAC system and you have to have it um, maintained on a monthly basis with a contract and, and it's a third party that comes out and does it and yada, yada, yada. Guess where that HVAC is located 99 times out of 100? On the roof. It's on the roof. Sure. Right? So so what happens? A, a landlord that, that buys a shopping center on a cap rate that may be too high or too low, frankly, 
and and now they're they're needing to maintain profit margin and and rents have moved I'll bet once a week we get a call from from a, a tenant who is trying to get evicted by the landlord for no apparent reason. They just want to try to create leverage to renegotiate the lease or put in a new tenant. Happens every day. So landlord gotchas. After that, we look at pass-through costs. What is the landlord trying to pass through to you? Most leases are triple net leases, meaning that, that instead of paying like an apartment where you might pay 1500 a month for your apartment, a triple net lease is a lease where you pay a base rent and then you will pay your share of the taxes for the shopping center, the insurance for the shopping center, and then maintenance of the shopping center. And then maintenance, taxes and insurance have their own things, but maintenance is where they really, really abuse their power. It's pretty self-evident or explanatory to think, all right, well, if the sprinkler breaks um, and they have to fix the sprinkler, I'll, I'll, I'll chip in for my share of that. Or, or the landscaping company that comes out and maintains the grass and makes it look nice, yeah, we'll, we'll pay our portion of that. But what if they have to go in and replace the entire sprinkler system? Or what if they have to go in and instead of just patching a hole or a, a pothole in the parking lot, they're literally going to rip up the parking lot and put in an entirely new parking lot or an entirely new roof instead of just a patch. Should you pay for that? Is that a capital improvement? This isn't maintenance. This is now improving the shopping center. And, and can landlords abuse that and create value and profit centers for themselves by doing this? Yep, absolutely, every day. Hmm. Can they hide it under the guise of saying, oh, I... I Replace the entire sprinkler system to have more efficient water use. Okay, well, was it more efficient, or did you just did you just pay for half a million dollars worth of new improvements to the center so that when the landlord sells it, he gets he literally gets to claim that value in his sale price. So we really look at pass through costs and and do everything in our power to strip that down to what is a real maintenance. Then lastly, we have your specific tenant needs, desires. Do you want valet parking? Do you want specific parking spots delineated for you? Do you want extra? Um, do you want extra patio space so you're not being charged rent for? You know those types of things. And amazingly, as we've gone through it, there's a lot in the lease we go through before we even get to, hey tenant, what do you want? Right. Because there's just so much in these things. But yes, last but not least, tenant, what is specific to you and your use and this center and this premises that you want and need for your business? And then we include those in our lease reviews as well. So leases are a huge deal not to be overlooked. They are not cheap and they shouldn't be cheap because your entire livelihood at that site is built around it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, those, yeah, you have to get that right. It's, it, other, if you do not get it right, um, you, you really could um, be talking to your bankruptcy buddy down 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 the aisle. But 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 what I want to do um, in, in in kind of wrapping up that concept is is for folks. Is, I want to go right back to the beginning. What you talked about. Don't get emotionally attached to that property. 
and and you talked about why. I mean, folks, if 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 you just listen to Kareem talk there, and and you and you went ahead and signed the lease and within 30 minutes of getting your offer from from your agent, you're probably you know shitting your pants right now because uh, there's there's a, a lot of things you've got to make sure you look at. So so all the stuff that he went over, know that there's that plus more. And so work with whoever you work with, really go through that thing because it is going to be the piece to make sure you get what you want out of your business. So caution there. Uh, so two big things. Formation was big. Um, uh, leasing, uh, real estate aspects are big. Uh, we could talk about a lot, but the last main area I, I want to talk about real quickly is there's so much going on with um, employee stuff and labor stuff and, and uh, wages going up and hours being limited, and I, I can't keep up with it all. What would be a couple main things that people got to know about these days about um, their, their staff? One, you, you absolutely have to have a good employment agreement template that you know is compliant with the law in your state and an employee handbook that delineates the rules and responsibilities that are common to all employees. If you do not have an employee handbook, you are severely limiting your abilities to terminate employees for failure to follow them. Some states are right-to-work states, meaning you can lay off for any reason that you want. Texas happens to be one of those, but not all states are right-to-work states. So it's, it's imperative that in your, in your labor relations with your employees that you're in a position where, where you are in, in a position of strength when dealing with them. Also, the concept of tip pooling and wage and hour litigation, which is really prevalent across the country, uh, it's it's important that you understand how tip pooling should work and and that you are not overstepping your bounds. And the short of it is the only people that can share in a tip pool are people that serve. If they're not serving, they don't get to share in the tip pool. Sommeliers don't get to share in the tip pool. Uh, kitchen guys don't get to share in the tip pool. So it, it, tip pools have been rated for for years, and and ultimately the tip pool needs to be very very thoroughly reviewed to ensure that the right people are being included in the tip pool and the wrong people are not being included in the tip pool. It is because of the litigation that that has has come about. I encourage all of my clients to use formal POS point of sale systems that have a lot of this baked into the software, so that it takes it out of your hands. Most of my clients will do that. There are some great point of sale systems out there that that have one, A, streamlined operations and made service way more efficient than it was in the past, but two, are very, very good about including those types of things, particularly to pulling things into the software so that you're not, so you're not either knowingly or unknowingly violating a tip pool. It is, it is something that is, quote, strict liability, meaning that it doesn't matter whether you did it or not on purpose. It's, it only matters if you did it. And if you did it, you're liable, period, end of story. So, so tip pooling is is one you can't say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, let me pay you out of pocket. Uh-uh. There are statutory fines, there are federal fines, 
and and it is it is strict liability for doing it. It is it is problematic. So that's that's my my overview on on labor and employment. What one quick thing uh, on, on the staff because these days it's uh, it's become an issue, right? Um, do you recommend folks do anything as it relates to social media and or technology policy? Things you can't do with your phone at work, things you can't say online about the restaurant. Do you, you ever touch that uh, touch that area? Sure. So most handbooks should have a social media policy. Um, they should include non-disparagement of your employer and your and your business. Staff members, um, servers, and runners have a tendency to, to lash out, and the first thing they do is, is talk about how much they hate their boss and how much they hate their restaurant and, and how dirty the kitchen is on social media. So it's it's really important that you include those provisions in employment agreements or handbooks so that you can very easily take that, get that A taken down or, or B have an ability to terminate that employee quickly and easily. Right, right, right. Yeah, important, important point. Yeah, especially with every darn person on the planet carrying a phone. Well, I, I think um, I want to set up another call for you in the future because, man, I think we scratched the surface on 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 a few things, and I think you've got some stories to tell that that could help people in the future. So I, I think it'll be interesting to dig in more. But for today, we covered a lot, and and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Uh, for folks that are interested in learning more about you and your firm and the services that you offer restaurants and bars and, and retailers, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So we're, we have a website. It's www.legalstrategy.com. You can find me on our firm profiles under attorneys. I'm Kareem Hajar. And, and um, very easy to find me. And, and what you'll find with, with us is that you'll get a response very, very quickly. It, we work as fast as you work, so you guys need to get the food out on the table, and, and the result of it is what we have what we have found is that the expectation for for service is is equally fast. So it's it's a bar that we've we've embraced. So if you have a question, feel free to email me or feel free to to give me a holler, and either I will pick up the phone or my assistant will pick up the phone and and we'll get some scheduled. So and we'll do it quickly. So anyway, pleasure being on on the program today, and and hope to come back another day. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, yeah, folks, if you are in, in the hospitality industry, yeah, look for someone like Kareem uh, that has been in, in the trenches, that has solved the, the problems for other clients uh, rather than, uh, you, you know, someone who, who doesn't do it day in and day out. So so we covered a lot there. I appreciate it, folks. This has been Jamie Oichel from RunningRestaurants.com along with Kareem Hajar of Hajar Peters. Be sure to check them out on the web at LegalStrategy.com. Thank you so much for listening, and all the best for your restaurant business.